The Bob Murphy Show, episode 230. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This is a funky one. What happened was originally I was going to do another installment of my series on Klaus Schwab and the WEF and the Great Reset. But then I had a little back and forth with Dave Smith regarding the Johns Hopkins study that showed um, lockdowns didn't do very much in terms of reducing mortality. And so I thought, oh, I'll just briefly mention that and then I'll get into the Klaus. Well, the thing with Dave Smith ended up taking almost 40 minutes. And then on top of that, I did record an additional almost hour or so talking about Schwab and his buddies. And then there was some kind of glitch though in the audio that I don't know if I jostled my mic or something and it switched over to the in laptop inbuilt mic and it sounded awful. So what I decided to do is since I'm so late with this episode anyway, is just to go ahead and release my remarks regarding the back and forth I had with Dave Smith regarding the Johns Hopkins study and lockdowns. And then I will, as soon as possible, get you a new episode that's just a standalone for part three in my Klaus Schwab series. And there's going to be probably four total just to allow you to pace yourself and manage expectations. Okay, so if in the following, if at any point I'm talking as if, okay, and so now we're going to go ahead and get into Klaus, that's just because when I recorded it, that's what I thought I was doing. But now I just told you what happened. All right, so don't be confused if if some stray remarks slip through like that. Without further ado, here is my discussion about the Johns Hopkins study vis-a-vis my Twitter exchange with Dave Smith. All right. Dave Smith recently tweeted something about this Johns Hopkins study talking about lockdowns and their relative impotence. And then I tweeted something back at him on this. And then he and Robbie in a recent episode of the Part of the Problem brought the issue up. So of course, I'll link to all this stuff. Folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 230. But let me just here in this forum, briefly address what the dispute was between me and Dave. And partly I want to do it because I, unfortunately, had I realized Dave and Robbie were going to address the issue on their show, I would have been more careful. So what happened is I kind of fired from the hip and misframed what my actual concern was with Dave's original tweet. And then he understandably took me at face value and responded to what I said, as opposed to what I was really thinking and didn't come out right. All right. So there you go. So I'm not blaming him for misunderstanding my tweet. It's, it was my fault. But in any event, in case you don't know, there was a Johns Hopkins study that came out. And by that, I mean, the three authors are associated with Johns Hopkins. And it had said that the various lockdown measures, at least in the first wave, only reduced mortality by a very small uh, percent. And therefore, you know, given all the huge costs of these lockdown policies, that they were a mistake. 
and certainly policymakers should take them off the table for future pandemic management. And uh, one of the authors of this was Steve Hankey. Many of you may know he's like the inflation guy. So I don't know Steve personally, but I know of him. And, you know, this none of these remarks should be construed as a criticism of him by any stretch. But what Dave had said was something like, after that Johns Hopkins study came out, all the policymakers who were involved with implementing or recommending lockdowns should lose their jobs and never come within 30 feet of talking to the public again about any of this stuff. Something like that. That was one of the exact words. But also, he started the tweet by saying, if we lived in a just and sane world, this is what would happen after that Johns Hopkins study came out, is that namely the people who were involved with promoting lockdowns, you know, would be forever disgraced, that kind of thing. So that's what I actually disagree with, all right, that in other words, from my perspective, even though, of course, as you all know, who've been listening to me for years, I from day one was totally against any government intervention even though I also, as many of you may know, have been much more receptive to the idea that wearing a mask, particularly a well-fitting N95 mask, is a lot better than not doing anything if you don't want to catch this thing. So even though I'm, I agree with the conclusion, and it doesn't surprise me that the political measures, besides being a rights violation, also might not be very efficacious, pragmatically speaking, it does seem like freedom and desirable outcomes on other dimensions tend to go hand in hand, that there's no trade-off between freedom and safety, for example, when it comes to airline regulation. Nonetheless, I do not at all think that, oh, gee, if our opponents were just honest, then once this Johns Hopkins study broke, you know, they would all hang their heads in shame and go commit seppuku. I don't think that at all. So let me just explain why. So that's why I objected to what Dave originally said. Now, the problem is the way I framed it in my initial Twitter response to him was I said something like, well, Dave, in fairness, if a Johns Hopkins study came out saying lockdowns in the United States avoided 1.2 million deaths that otherwise would have occurred from coronavirus, you and Robbie would not have apologized on air for misleading your viewers or your, your listeners. You, know, you probably wouldn't have even talked about it. And so the, the problem there is because then he came back and said quite correctly, well, yeah, but that's because, you know, my position was never, oh, let's just follow the science and then do whatever saves lives. It's a you know, matter of rights to me. So even if lockdowns theoretically could save lives, I would still give people the freedom to do what they wanted to do. So that wouldn't be a problem for my position, whereas the onus, the burden of proof is on the people promoting lockdowns. So why don't I right now stop and we'll turn over to Dave and let him explain in his own words on his show. Let's open with this because it kind of relates to what was the main subject of our last podcast, which was the John Hopkins study that came to the conclusions that lockdowns, turns out, shocker, were not a great idea. I will take a step back and say it is pretty funny. Like, um, And I've, I've seen there's been some pushback against the, the study now because people are, you know, a lot of people in the establishment are freaking out about it. And then some other people who are just good people are like, kind of like, well, you know, did we really need a study to prove this? You know, are are we the people who like go like, oh, these studies are scientific. Like we pretend that they're doing like physics or chemistry or something like this. Uh, Bob Murphy, who I love, was making this point on Twitter today. And he's right in a sense like that. There's a lot of these times where there are these scientific studies and they act as if they're doing like chemistry, 
You know, like they act as if it's like, well, we mix these two chemicals together and it turns out that this is what happens. So that's the study. We know it for sure. When really these things are very flawed and in some ways subjective. And the only way you could ever really have a true perfect study of how effective lockdowns were, were if you had a time machine and you could run a scenario with the lockdowns, then go back in time and run a scenario without the lockdowns and then compare and contrast. So what they try to do with these things is look at, uh, you know, areas that didn't lock down versus areas that did lock down and then try to control for like population density and age and all of these things. But there's so many variables that it's hard to control for everything. But that's not really what the point of what we were kind of acknowledging last episode was. The point is that for lockdowns to be justified, there would have to be overwhelming evidence that they saved an enormous amount of lives. And even then, I wouldn't think they were justified because I believe in freedom. But if you believe lockdowns are justified, certainly the onus must be on you. Okay, so hopefully folks agree that I've accurately summarized Dave's position in response to me. So like I said, that unfortunately, I misframed it. What I was really thinking was that, no, Dave, if the study had come out the other way, you would have dismissed it. You would have thought it was wrong and correct because you would have just been able, if you cared, you would have just gone and found an MD or a, you know, epidemiologist or whatever from quote our side who could have gone through and pointed out all the flaws in the study and studies like these are always going to have shortcomings. And then you just would have moved on with your life. You would have said that. So this isn't even right. And so it, you know, it wouldn't have kept you up at night. Like, oh yes, I know our position is very principled and we're for freedom and property rights, but man, in this particular case, my position is causing a million extra Americans to be dead who otherwise would be, you wouldn't even have that angst. So you wouldn't be contradicting yourself because you were for freedom and that was it, period. But you wouldn't be worried that, wow, this is a tough case where, geez, my principles have actually led to a bunch of people being dead. No, you wouldn't have worried about that at all because you would have understandably looked at the study purporting to show the otherwise and seen all the flaws with it. And so I'm saying likewise here, there are a bunch of shortcomings with this Johns Hopkins study. And so it doesn't surprise me in the least that the pro-lockdown people don't care about it and they're not being intellectually dishonest. It's just, yeah, this is, this is not helping their tribe and why, why would they care? So in particular, number one, this study is not even published yet. It's not even, it hasn't been peer reviewed. This is just a working paper. So I don't know if any of you folks who've been sharing it and, you know, tuning into Tucker Carlson or whatever, and, oh yeah, finally, you know, these other sides have gotten smashed. Did you even know that? So not that peer review magically makes something necessarily correct, but it is a good filter just to catch, you know, it's possible you, you just miss some obvious thing you should have controlled for if it's a, you know, regression analysis or something like that. And that's what the function of peer review is, is to have outsiders who are not committed to proving the case, whatever the paper is arguing for, looking at it with a critical eye and just saying, oh, wait a minute, did the authors, you know, either make some bonehead mistake somewhere or did they forget some obvious thing to correct for? And hey, I like this paper, but they should try, you know, they should address this issue or go consult this paper over here because they brought up an interesting objection that this paper has not grappled with and blah, 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 right? That's what the function of peer review is. And so in general, it is not evasive and a bogus move for someone to say, yeah, before I throw out my own 
career on something and everything I've advocated for since March 2020, I would like this paper to go through the peer review process first, right? That that would not be an unreasonable thing for these critics to say. Okay, beyond that, though, I found a PolitiFact article where the reporters, you know, not a fan of these guys, and they went and they got higher ups at Johns Hopkins to basically throw them under the bus to say, yeah, you know, we, we can't control what our researchers say. And by the way, these are like people who are affiliated with Johns Hopkins in a, in a center, right? It's not that they're necessarily all within 100 meters of each other working in offices at Johns Hopkins University. All right. So this reporter contacted people higher up affiliated with Johns Hopkins who said, yeah, this, you know, this doesn't necessarily represent our institutional viewpoint. These are some scholars that are associated with, they're all economists. And then they also can point to, and there were people earlier in the pandemic, experts in epidemiology and things like that, affiliated with Johns Hopkins, who came out and said lockdowns work, right? So they didn't release a paper saying lockdowns worked, but they, you know, were quoted in the press in response to earlier allegations at the end of 2020 that the lockdowns hadn't saved lives. And I, and I just happened to find this article that just coincidentally, I wasn't going out to find this per se, it just fell into my lap where the researchers that were quoted in this article to say, no, actually lockdowns do work, don't believe these talking points floating around social media, happened to be from Johns Hopkins, All right? So if you're some progressive leftist and you've got the higher ups at Johns Hopkins sort of disavowing this study. It hasn't been peer reviewed. It's by a bunch of economists. And then you've got epidemiologists and other medical professionals associated with Johns Hopkins saying, no, lockdowns do work. Who are you going to believe? And notice too, what Hankey and the co-authors were doing in the paper was not saying, hey, lockdowns do work to save lives, but the cost isn't worth it because there's all this, you know, GDP, blah, 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 which is something where you would say an economist might be competent to weigh in on. But no, they were considering the narrow technical question of did government lockdowns save lives? Not asking, you know, in the paper, was it worth it, the cost or not, broadly construed. And so when it comes to just assessing do lockdown policies cause fewer people to be dead a year later than otherwise would be the case, you wouldn't think economists would be particularly well-suited to study that question as opposed to epidemiologists or whatever, right? So again... I'm not saying Hanky and his co-authors did anything wrong, but you can understand why someone would not just say, oh my gosh, the jig is up. Dave Smith is right. Our life has been a lie the last two years or whatever in this case. So, I mean, if you care, you can go look at, again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 230 and they'll give some specifics as to what specifically was a, was a possible problem with this study. So for one thing is they had a broad definition of what a lockdown was. And so any government intervention in the name of preventing disease transmission could have fallen under that umbrella. Okay, that's my understanding of the definition they used. And by the way, this was like a meta study. So it was like Hanke and the co-authors went and reviewed other studies on this. It's not that they did their own research. And so they just said, hey, we looked at a bunch of studies that's, that looked at the you know lockdown policies in this area for this time period and lockdown policies in this area for this time period, and, da, da, da. and they sort of amalgamated it all together and then out popped the result that on average, lockdown policies around the world in this time period only spared blah, 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 right? So that's what they did. So to decide whether a particular paper should get into the bucket of this meta study, you have to say, what do we mean by a lockdown policy? And so one of the point the critics were making is that it was a broad definition. Things were included in there that many of us would not have said 
was, oh, that's not really a lockdown. It's more, you know, something else, right? So that's one possible issue. Again, I'm not saying Hanky and co-authors did something to load the deck, to rig the game that they, you know, that they chose their definition in order to get the outcome they wanted. That's not what I'm saying. But my point is you have to make decisions like that with something like this. And so then the critic can come along who doesn't like your conclusion and can go look at the assumptions you made and point to stuff. Okay, so I think that's enough. Let me just end with, again, I'm not even disagreeing with Dave's point that, hey, the onus is on the pro-lockdowners. And when a study like this comes out after they've been beating us over the head for two years about follow the science, and then they just ignore this, that's pretty revealing. I agree with that. That's exactly what I do when it comes to the climate change stuff, right? As those of you who follow my work in this area know that I've sort of repeated ad nauseum the fact that William Nordhaus wins the Nobel Prize or the uh, Nobel Memorial Prize by the Bank of Sweden in economics for his work on climate change modeling or I should say climate economic modeling, the economics of climate change modeling, where Nordhaus takes, you know, the results from the, what the climatologists are saying and then combines it with a stripped down model of the global economy for the next 300 years and tries to come up with some policy conclusions. And Nordhaus concluded that trying to limit global warming to even 2.5 degrees Celsius, let alone the more aggressive 1.5 C, would be so damaging that it would be better if governments did nothing rather than do that. So Nordhaus wins the Nobel Prize the same weekend that announcement is made is when the UN releases a special report on global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius and, you know, advising governments on here's various strategies you could use so we can collectively try to limit global warming to 1.5 C or as close as possible because that's, you know, what many activists and such say is a tipping point. Okay, and the press reported that stuff as if those two were complementary events. That oh yeah, Nordhaus wins the Nobel Prize for the growing you know concern over climate change, and by the way, UN came out with this report on why you know here's various ways governments could limit warming to 1.5 C, and not mentioning, of course, the guy who we just reported earlier in the story wins the Nobel Prize for his work in this area. His own model shows trying to limit global warming to 1.5 C would be so incredibly stupid and costly and draconian that it would be better if we just let it rip and just had unrestrained climate change, according to, you know, market laissez-faire market forces. No one mentioned that. And that seems like a big deal. And so here, even here, it's not that I am endorsing Nordhaus's model. I've actually got a peer-reviewed article from years ago criticizing Nordhaus's model and all the, you know, all the shortcomings. But I'm making the same kind of point Dave is that for the people who've been saying, oh, follow the science, you deniers, when it comes to climate change, it's a little bit hilarious that when a very reputable authoritative study comes out or a scholar emerges who wins the Nobel Prize in this area and his work is actually very critical of at least the particulars of climate change policy that no one even talks about it. And they just, you know, it's crickets. And if you do bring up the objections, they say, yeah, well, we all know the Nordhaus's model is stupid. And I say, well, but he just won the Nobel Prize. So... Okay, so I get Dave's point, and I'm not saying Dave should have kept his mouth shut. It's just more his thing about anyone who's been associated with the lockdowns in the wake of this Johns Hopkins study should just take a seat. And I'm just explaining to you folks why, no, if you were on the other side on this, this Johns Hopkins working paper from three economists would not phase you in the slightest, and that wouldn't mean you were intellectually dishonest either. Like, I can understand why it wouldn't. 
Okay. Actually, I realized after I had stopped recording that last section that I missed a major chunk of what I wanted to say. And the reason I'm going to add to this is I'm afraid I would give you the wrong impression and that you would think, oh, there were really specific problems with the Johns Hopkins study that Hank et al. put out and Bob was just enumerating those flaws. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the very nature of this type of enterprise is very dubious. And I, I said this on Twitter and, and Dave reiterated it on his own show. I don't remember off the top of my head if that was in the clip that we just played for you guys. But what I said was because this is a grand social outcome involving millions of people, you can't have a controlled experiment, right? So the, it's like with climate change, it's like with macroeconomics, you know, economists are still arguing about whether the New Deal helped or hurt in the Great Depression. You would think, geez, they've had decades at this point to argue about it. Surely some consensus should have emerged and it hasn't. And it's not merely because of politics and that one side is lying. Right? And that's what I want to emphasize here. Right? And so likewise with this stuff about the efficacy or lack thereof of government interventions in the name of preventing coronavirus transmission, and I should say novel coronavirus as of 2020, right? This is the problem. And it's not that one group needs to be dishonest and twirling their mustaches behind closed doors. So to be clear, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that all of the powers that be, the man, as it were, is just actually trying to do the right thing in this. And we just have a disagreement over the science. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. What I am saying though, is for the people who are on team lockdown, the fact that this Johns Hopkins study came out is no reason that they should throw up their hands and resign in shame. Okay. And, and again, now what I'm going to go into here, you're saying, yeah, Bob, you just reiterate for the last two minutes what you already said. Yes. But I wanted to reset the table. But now I want to be more specific because, it, again, it, it's not that, oh, I found particular flaws. It's that there's no way to do this. You can't have a control experiment. The only way in reality you would be able to know whether this particular government policy helped or hurt, once you defined what you meant by that criterion, would be to have a time machine and go back in time and then tweak the policy in question and then let the outcome run again. And even there, you know, if you think there's inherent variability, randomness, in human affairs, then even there you would say that does, that's not decisive, but that's much better than what we have right now, right? So for example, with the Great Depression, really what you would want to do is go back in time and have FDR not implement the New Deal and do something more conventional and then look at the difference in the relevant statistics that you care about and again, compare the two alternate universes. But we can't do that, obviously, right? And so to look at some other country and some other time period or at the same time period, you know, to compare the U.S. and Canada, which I do in my book, Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and New Deal, I compare the U.S. and Canadian unemployment rates and I, and I show that the gap between them doesn't seem to indicate that FDR helped, right? But does that mean the New Deal was bad? No, the U.S. could have gotten hit with something worse than Canada got hit with after FDR got sworn in, right? So that's not definitive proof. So let's take something like lockdowns or, or mask mandates to make it more relevant to the discussion at hand, just because you look out into the world and look at the history and look at some charts, for example, and say, oh, look at this. If you put charts side by side, and you know, this Tom Woods has been doing this 
indefatigably. Is that the adverb I want right there? And, and this is good stuff and it's obviously relevant. And I think it does show that the case for these policies is not as airtight as it's some of its most adamant proponents have led us to believe, or at least did until the narrative started collapsing. So this is all useful, but I just want to point out in case you thought this was a total slam dunk and only an intellectual moron or liar could possibly think that putting a mask on somehow slows virus transmission after looking at all these charts, give me a break. That's what I want to just point out to you that no, somebody who believed in this stuff need not be moved just because of some charts like this. And then, and so that's what I want to get across right now, why that could be. So what if part of what's going on is that the areas where they're more likely to be in danger from an outbreak, they're the ones that get ahead of it and put in mask mandates or, you know, lockdowns, or they have fax passport requirements, things like that. All right. And so the analog here is it's, too naive to merely look around through history and run a simple regression, for example, on government budget deficits, there's a share of GDP, let's say, and economic growth. And if you did that, you might find that, oh, look at when a government runs a big budget deficit, the economy tends to grow poorly. Therefore, Arthur Laffer is right. John Maynard Keynes is wrong. Or therefore, Murray Rothbard is right. John Maynard Keynes is wrong. But the Keynesians could come back and say, well, no, that's too simplistic because when do we implement Keynesian policies? It's when we're in a really bad economy. Just like you could run a simple regression and say, gee, people who take aspirin, at least in the first six hours, tend to have a worse headache than people who don't take aspirin. Therefore, taking aspirin gives you a headache. Well, maybe let's say the first hour to make it clearer what I was just doing there with that analogy, Right or if you prefer, within the first 10 minutes, in case some of you are still like, what are you talking about, Bob? Usually an aspirin kicks it. Okay, if we just look at the first 10 minutes after taking an aspirin, are you more or less likely to have a headache? I'm guessing the answer would be an overwhelming percentage of people are, uh, you know, you're much more likely to have a headache within the first 10 minutes of having taken an aspirin than not. See how that works? Okay, does that mean, therefore, that, geez, not only does taking an aspirin not apparently help your headache, it actually gives you headaches. What the heck? No, that would be stupid. Okay, so there's problems like that with all of these government policies that are being implemented is that it's hard to know what's leading what. And more generally, there's all sorts of things that could affect economic growth during a sluggish economy or virus transmission. And so just, just focus on one narrow factor and for you know to show charts for example like that per se is not a slam dunk because there could be a million things going on so let me just end this discussion with an, another analogy that i think will help drive home the point so i might not convince you but at least you'll see i'm not just grasping at straws or something that this is in, in fact you know a serious issue you could probably use charts to quote prove that raising the minimum wage aggressively does nothing to slow the growth of teenage employment, right? You could show two states side by side and plot their unemployment rate for teenagers or for fast food workers, whatever you want to choose that you think is going to really be tailored to show the deleterious effects of raising the minimum wage. And you could show, look, you could, you know, you could do things like say, hey, look at this state and this state. I'll tell you in this time period that I've charted here for these two respective states, one of them 
had a significant minimum wage hike in this time period, whereas the other one didn't. So you tell me, without me telling you, look at these numbers, look at these charts, you tell me when that minimum wage hike hit. And I bet there would be a lot of pairwise comparisons and charts I could show you, and you would have no idea, right? It wouldn't be that the two rates would tend to move together, and then one of them, all of a sudden, the unemployment rate would spike, and that's where the minimum wage hike went in, that you wouldn't be able to tell with a naked eye. And in fact, you could find plenty of examples and say, oh, this state and this state were, are adjacent even, so they have similar geographical characteristics or things that are related to geography. And this state at this time period implemented an aggressive minimum wage hike. And look at, there was actually stronger employment growth in fast food workers in this state relative to its peer that kept the status quo in terms of policies. So clearly, anybody telling you that minimum wage hikes hurt employment growth is crazy. And that, in case you're not catching up on what I'm saying here, that's exactly what happened in the famous or infamous Card-Kruger study. It was, I think, what, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and one of them aggressively raised their minimum wage. And so they showed how, you know, their, the, the McDonald's, like on either side of the border, behaved similarly. And then the state that raised its minimum wage actually saw faster growth in the amount of people working at their fast food restaurants than the adjacent state did. And so, oh, see, that's a right-wing myth. that So what's the response there? So yes, you can go look at the particulars of the study and people have done that to critique it, but there's lots of studies like that. And that's why there's this revisionist wave in the literature such that a lot of economists now, particularly if they're left-wing progressives, no longer think that raising the minimum wage obviously reduces the growth in teenage employment because they say, oh, look, there's just been a whole host of new studies. That's one of my regrets, by the way, is when I was at Texas Tech, I wanted to really get into that literature because there's something fishy about it. It's like if you do a regression and include all sorts of obvious controls, like for geography and other things, on the U.S., it does pop out that the variable talking about the minimum wage has a statistically significant negative coefficient, right? Showing that yeah, in general, raising the minimum wage tends to reduce teenage employment. But then they go in and they do a bunch of other controls and, and then it disappears. And when they talk about what they did, they'll say stuff like, well, you know, we controlled for other things like automation. And once you do that, the effect disappears. And so that made my antenna go up because I was like, well, it would be wrong to say raising the minimum wage isn't what reduced employment. It was the fact that all the McDonald's franchises introduced kiosks. And that's why they don't need to hire as many teenagers as they did 10 years ago. And so therefore, the minimum wage has nothing to do with it. That would be goofy, I say, because part of the reason McDonald's might have more aggressively switched over to introducing kiosks is because of past minimum wage hikes, or they see what's looming in the future and they want to get ahead of it. All right. So that particular quote control, I actually think is wrong. But in any event, you can see how this discussion shows if it's something complicated like teenage employment, where there's a million things affecting it, only one of which is the variable under consideration, namely minimum wage hikes, that you can get all sorts of outcomes 
where you, you put two jurisdictions side by side and it looks like the minimum wage either has no impact or does the opposite. So then when you get lots of examples like that, you can conclude clearly this isn't a very important causal factor because, and to go back to the earlier discussion, because it might be, for example, that, oh, states where they have a good economy, the voters feel like it wouldn't be so bad to legislate a minimum wage hike to, hey, let's at least share some of these gains with the the poor workers here, the kids bussing tables and stuff like that. And whereas maybe if the economy is doing poorly, then the unions and the politicians realize, yeah, now's right now is not the great time to to go ahead and implement a, a statewide minimum wage hike. I'm not saying that that is the case. And sometimes the logic goes the other way around. They go ahead and try to ram it through thinking, oh, wow, times are tough. We really need to support the most vulnerable. But you see what I'm saying, that if that is the, what happens in practice, that sometimes it's easier to push through a minimum wage hike if there's prosperity, because it's, it seems like, oh, there's some extra gains on the table that we can share without hurting too much. Then the outcome would tend to be just looking at the results that, oh, those states that raised the minimum wage actually saw stronger growth in employment among teenagers even than states that didn't. Therefore, raising the minimum wage certainly doesn't hurt and actually might arguably help employment growth. Maybe the Keynesians have a point. Maybe it puts money into the pockets of people who are going to go spend it, right? So you can come up with any kind of thing. So now that you see, if you presumably most of my listeners think aggressively raising the minimum wage, other things equal, tends to reduce the growth in teenage employment. And so if I show you a bunch of charts or if I show you a bunch of even simple regressions showing that, no, there's no statistically significant coefficient on that variable, you're going to just say, well, you framed it poorly. Because why? Because you know it does. Simple logic tells you that making labor more expensive makes employers, other things equal, want to hire fewer units of it. And that all these particulars I'm giving you, you could just explain away with other things and you would be right to do so, or at least it would be worth investigating all that stuff. It doesn't mean you're intellectually dishonest for clinging to the belief that raising the price of teenage labor makes it harder for those kids to get a job in the first place. And so likewise, you can see how someone would think, well, if the way a disease is transmitted is by people being in close proximity to each other, especially indoors, then other things equal saying people aren't allowed to do that or they, you know, you reduce the amount by which they engage in that behavior. How could that possibly not reduce other things equal the spread of the disease? Now, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe the, the costs are too high, but how could that not other things equal slow the spread? You can see someone thinking that and then, well, no, well, look, at there's these two jurisdictions and, or, you know, these studies that Hanke had all looked at, all found that, and they could go and look at each one and say, well, yeah, the problem with this one is, and then, well, see, there's different things going on. These cultures are different. And these people mask all, you know, they always mask whenever there's a flu season. So the fact that the mandate didn't do much here relative to the counterfactual baseline just reflects the fact that these people are already masked, right? So you could do stuff like that. And I'm saying that's not them grasping at straws, just like presumably the way you, the typical Bob Murphy Show listener, would explain away. And I, I want to be clear here. It's not like there was just the Cardin Kruger study and that was a one-off anomaly. No, there has been a whole avalanche of new empirical studies that seem to show that once you properly control for all these other factors, this is alleged 
huge impact of the minimum wage on teenage employment disappears. And yet plenty of economists, certainly of the Austrian school, continue to teach people with confidence that the minimum wage hurts employment, especially among the, quote, the most vulnerable communities. And I don't think we're being unscientific, even though our critics like Paul Krugman says, we just have ignored the last 20 years of the literature. We don't care. We have our dogmatic view and we don't care what the data say. All right. I think I've made the point here. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.